0: Uh, my name is Laurel Domstik, and I'll be sharing a little bit with you this morning on dark secrets of feminism, and you will be very amazed. Before we begin, though, we do not want the powers of darkness attending this meeting. We want holy angels attending everything we say. We, and so um, sometimes when we're talking about such things... We want to make sure we have an extra contingency of angels. I just was saying that maybe you want to, if you can see the screen, that's fine, but I may be standing in the way for some of you. So I just encourage everybody to move to this side so you have a better view. And we are going to begin with prayer, please. Dear Heavenly Father, Right now, we are asking you to be glorified in everything. Not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, you win everything in our lives. Just now, we ask for the Holy Spirit to tend our meeting. May the spirit be the Holy Spirit. And we ask for holy angels to block out the evil one as we discuss these matters and we ask that you will bring discernment and attentiveness and wakefulness to each one of us we thank you in jesus name amen, amen. just a little background on me who am i i was born and reared in thailand my parents were missionaries in thailand for 26 years I didn't live there for 26 years, obviously, but I spent my whole childhood in Thailand. So when I talk to people, I always say I have a a Thai heart. In Thai, it's Jai Thai. It means I have a Thai heart. I may look American, but really it's a a Thai heart inside. So I have missionary blood running thick through my veins. I loved missions. And and, uh, my husband and I um, spent years ourselves over there. I also love God and love his word and love the spirit of prophecy. Even as a child, uh, my parents would say, well, what would you like for Christmas this year? And I'd say, I want a Bible and I want a Bible with with references. And I want or I would tell them exactly what spirit of prophecy book that I wanted, because I just love studying the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. I went on to get my BA in Theology at Atlantic Union College and my Masters of Divinity at Andrews and my Masters in Public Health at Loma Linda. Um, On this platform here, I'm in the middle, obviously. My dad is on my left and my grandfather, who was a Seventh-day Adventist minister, and a missionary in India for, I don't know, many 20-some years also. And uh, so at my husband's ordination to gospel ministry, I resolved to be a teammate in ministry. I never wanted any ordination, even though I went through and I'm as well trained as as most of the pastors. We uh, ministered together in Virginia, Thailand, Korea and now Andrews University, where my husband teaches church history at the seminary. While I was going to seminary, I had a a quote that I looked at and bothered me. And it's found in First Testimonies, page 421. And I'm going to read a, a, a little bit from this page and explain why this troubled me. Notice what it says. The spirit which attends the one and this is talking about spiritualism and women's rights, cannot be in harmony with the other. The scriptures are plain upon the relationships and rights of men and women. Okay? Now, we, today there's a lot of talk, you know, and a lot of people say the scriptures aren't plain, but Ellen White says they are plain. There is a basic incompatibility. Those who feel called out to join the movement in favor of women's rights and the so-called dress reform movement might as well sever all connection with the third angel's message. Wow, that is really strong. And when I found this when I was going to seminary, it puzzled me. Why? Why is... This why is what was wrong with women's rights? I mean, I was a child of the the liberation movement and you know what was wrong with that? And I started studying and trying to discover what was why why they should sever all connection with the third angel's message. Still from first testimonies four twenty-one. Notice there was a problem with women's rights and the third angel's message being incompatible. First Testimonies 421. Spiritualists have to quite an extent adopted the singular mode of dress. Seventh-day Adventists who believe in the restoration of the gifts are often branded as spiritualists. Let them adopt this costume and their influence is dead. So all here we find out that Third Angel's Message and women's rights are not compatible and that it has something to do with dress reform and spiritualism. And that was just totally confusing to me. What is going on here? And so I said, how is this spiritualism? How is women's rights, which was the forerunner of our feminism, related to spiritualism anyway? So I want to take us back and discuss... Really, what is spiritualism? And I have divided this into type 1 spiritualism and type 2 spiritualism. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, Satan, his first lie to Eve was, Ye shall not surely die. And if the dead are not really dead, the devil can directly communicate through wrappings and through apparitions and through seances and all these things that we are very familiar with this kind of of, uh, spiritualism. And notice in Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 14, that God calls this an abomination. All of those kinds of things, God calls an abomination. There's no way we consider spiritualism to be something that is compatible with our third angel's message. All right, so now there's another kind of spiritualism that Ellen White talks about, and that's what I want to discuss here. In Genesis 3, 5, Satan's second lie was, ye shall be as gods. Now, there's a very excellent chapter in Great Controversy, talked saying, can our dead speak to us? I think that's the name of it. And in this, she takes first type 1 spiritualism and type 2 spiritualism. Notice at, in the Garden of Eden, there were two trees, the tree of knowledge, of good and evil, which is forbidden wisdom, and the other tree of life, two trees, Nobody forced Eve to go near the second tree. In fact, they were angels warned her not to go near there, but she went there anyway. And here we have, when when the serpent said to her, "Ye shall be as God," this was a challenge, a direct challenge against God Himself. It was woman versus God, her judgment against His. Of course It was encouragement from the devil, of course. And Eve chooses to believe the serpent over God. And that choice means that she becomes the norm. She becomes the God because she is choosing over God. All right? I call this type two spiritualism, and we'll unpack this more. So, in Great Controversy 554, the chapter that I was talking about a few minutes ago, we find out that part of this philosophical spiritualism includes the idea that we are all gods, all right? Spiritualism teaches, Ellen White says in Great Controversy 554, that man is the creature of progression, that it is his destiny from his birth to progress even to eternity toward the Godhead. My fellow man, all were unfallen demigods. And another declares, any just and perfect being is Christ. All right, so th- you hear this a lot in New Age philosophy today. The God that's within you the- and listening to your inner self, all these kind of things. These are shades of this type two um, spiritualism. So, any just and perfect being is Christ. That is a direct insult and blasphemous towards Jesus Christ. Another aspect of the philosophical spiritualism that Ellen White talks about in Great Controversy 555 is that anything is okay. He declares through the spirits that true knowledge places man above all law, that whatever is, is right that God doth not condemn and that all sins which are committed are innocent. So whatever is is right and love makes immoral acts okay between consenting adults. Have you ever heard that before? Oh, that's all around us. There was the book way back that says I'm okay, you're okay. This is the the main tenet of existential uh, philosophy that what I believe is, is good for me, and what's good is okay for you, it's good for you, and we'll all be friends because we, you believe what you believe, I believe what. There's no real truth in life, okay? Everybody can have their own opinion, their own idea, and we're all right. Everything is fine. Do you see? that this is a a little problem here because it means that there is no right and no wrong. Everything is okay. Another aspect of this philosophical spiritualism is that it voids scriptural authority. Of course, if everything's right between everything, then of course, that scripture really has no meaning because we, we don't go by that truth at all. And uh, Great Controversy in 557 to 558 says the following. It is true that spiritualism is assuming a Christian guise. While it formally denounced Christ in the Bible, it now professes to accept both. But, notice the but, the Bible is interpreted in a manner that is pleasing to the unrenewed heart while its solemn and vital truths are made of no effect. So we find that with spiritualism here of this type that the Bible is totally reinterpreted and that reinterpretation makes it of no effect. That means that if you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say then it has no final authority and there is, it's not truth as we know it. It's very, very important to understand how the Bible is treated by spiritualism. All right, I want to take a step back now and discuss the spiritualism and the beginnings of the women's movement. Now you may say, why are we going through all this stuff anyway? What does it have to do with our church? Did our church have any idea of what was going on? Did the Adventists recognize this connection between spiritualism and women's rights? In fact, it did. Uh, This picture right here is Uriah Smith and J.H. Wagner, this is senior had articles on spiritualism in the review in which they discussed women's rights and some of the very people that I'm going to be talking about in this. And so uh, Uriah Smith told how the career of Mrs. Woodhull was planned and executed thus far wholly by the spirits. Now, you're going to hear all about Mrs. Woodhull in a minute, so just give me a minute. We'll get around to that. But notice... Our people were on top of things. They were w- watching the times. They understood the implications of the people that were around them, and it was not a mystery to them. So, is this something I just dreamed up about the connection between women's rights and spiritualism from my studies? Indeed not. Since I studied uh, way back in the ancient times, right, Carolyn, uh, at the seminary, more books have come out and been very definitive about the connection between women's rights and uh, spiritualism. Uh, One book is by Ann Brody, uh, Radical Spiritualism and Women's Rights in the 19th Century, and Barbara, Barbara Goldsmith, Other Powers. Both these books and there are others. I just took two as a sample to show you what uh, is out there and that this isn't something I'm just dreaming up. Anne Brody said, Spiritualism was a new religious movement dominated by women. Spiritualism, okay? Its two strong attractions were rebellion against death and rebellion against authority. So if we're rebellion against death, we're espousing necromancy, uh, speaking with the dead. And we call that type one spiritualism, as I just went through. And rebellion against authority is uh, Satan's second lie. Ye shall be as gods. And that is type two spiritualism. And Ann Brody uh, mentioned this. So let's just take a a look at classical spiritualism and let us have an idea of what was going on in those times. Type 1 classical was that the dead give guidance. And these are the Fox sisters here. Don't they look joyful and happy? Uh, 1849, notice the time. This is all around the time when our church was gaining momentum and beginning to... Um, send the three angels' messages around the world and, and figuring out things theologically. And this was the same time that Satan made his big thrust with the beginnings of modern spiritualism. So, these women made necromancy a big show. The objects would move, or spirits would uh, make uh, suddenly appear, or t- tables would s- start wiggling in the air or levitating. Um, All these type of supernatural things and people were so wowed by this. They became very popular. Very incidentally spiritualists were among the first to ordain women. It was a woman dominated society. As far as uh, women's rights movement leaders were concerned, I'm going to emphasize just a few here to just give you an idea of how they were involved in spiritualism. Susan B. Anthony is one of the early um, uh, women's rights movement leaders. She was well known, and this is something she said, if the spirits would only make me a trance medium and put the rights into my mouth, if they would only come to me thus, I'd give them a hearty welcome. She was totally open to spiritualism. I want to spend a lot of time on Elizabeth Cady Stanton because she became a prototype of feminism today. Uh, Mrs. Stanton was a very strong person and had a very great influence on the spiritualism uh, and on women's rights. She was one of the foremost in women's rights, but she also had spiritualistic dabblings. She heard spirit raps, she was very antagonistic toward the Bible and to clergy. She, she just had this, you know, anger that would just fire up in her if she heard anything about uh, ministers or about the Bible. She was very, very angry. And so spiritualistic dabblings would be type 1 and the antagonism to Bible and clergy would be type 2 spiritualism. This is a, a table. It's known as the McClintock Spirit Table. And this was a table that was, um, well, let me explain. The first women's rights convention was in Seneca Falls, New York. And they, at that session, forwarded a Declaration of Rights and Sentiments, and it was signed in 1848 by 58 women and 32 men. This was largely penned by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but it was written on this McClintock spirit table, and at her death, this table was at the head of her coffin. It is now in the Smithsonian, and it's a demo of the feminism-spiritualistic connection, because as members of the group presented their ideas for this uh, Declaration of Rights and Sentiments, the table began to vibrate with raps of approval from the spirits. Now, that should give you enough to know that there's something going on here that the devil was very happy about. So let's look a little bit into the philosophy and the beliefs of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. First thing I want to discuss is her views on marriage and the family. She was a forerunner of the feministic ideas of home life repressing women. So, what did she actually believe about marriage? She totally hated the idea of the biblical role of the distinctions of male as head and female as submissive. And she characterized those as slavery, And she thought all of this nonsense was the fault of organized religion. She called for a full equality in marriage. And now we call that egalitarianism. Both partners, she felt, should be free to come and go as they desire. No hierarchy. That means no leadership of the male and uh, submissiveness of the female. She was for equality, fraternity, mutuality, friendship as basic for family government. We would call this type 2 spiritualism. Now, what was her view on the Bible? I already told you she hated the Bible and she hated uh, clergy. And so she got this idea that if she could get a group of women together and they would go through the Bible... They could interpret everything in the Bible to promote women and women's rights. And anything that would be possibly a problem towards women, they would just take care of that, and they would reinterpret things. And so she didn't like the clergy in the churches because she felt they oppressed the women. She disliked the Bible because of Pauline and other, quote, negative uh, passages that were toward women. So let's just reinterpret it, and she used higher critical methodology. And people that worked with her, she wasn't the only author on this. She had other persons, and some of them you don't even know who they are. But because like this one is E M in Women's Bible, and I don't know who E M was, but uh, E M wrote this. Whatever progress woman has had in any department of effort she has accomplished independently of and in opposition to the so-called inspired infallible word of God, and that this book has been of more injury to her than has any other which has ever been written in the history of the world. Is that a positive thing towards the Bible? Absolutely not. It's very, very negative towards the Bible. Type 2, spiritualism. So let's ask, what is higher criticism, or historical criticism, as it's often called? And there are many variants of it nowadays. Um, This was kind of the old terms. Now there are many, many uh, types of this. It says that essentially uh, the Bible is a man-made book that records man's experiences, focusing on biases of the authors, and explains them by their cultures. Okay, so it totally dismisses any kind of divine uh, divinity from the word of God. It is not from God. God didn't say any of the, the things in the Bible. It's just people writing their own experiences, and based on their biases and their culture, they just write what's, what's, their, what's their feeling about things. So, instead of the Bible being the voice of God with universal norms that transcend all cultures, the Bible becomes very human and is authored by men with distinct biases and orientations and it's just full of errors and discrepancies. That is what the bottom line of higher criticism criticism is. It causes doubt because they, they don't believe stories are true but they just say, those are stories believed by the authors. They're not really true or re- reality, but that's what the author says. And so it introduces a whole realm of doubt and, and uh, uh, is very destructive. And this is really making of none effect the word of God. And We shudder at this if we read plain scriptures and we meet, make it read something completely opposite because of interpretation or cultural background, Or any reason we have made of none effect the word of God, and this is the same as historical critical methodology. All right, so we've talked about her views on the home, we've talked now also about her views of the Bible. Now, what was her views on dress reform? Okay. Uh, She was the first, one of the first to introduce bloomers. Very early she realized that the ridiculous clothing of the day hampered women from accomplishing everything a man could do. Now this is true. The, the, Ellen White was also very critical of the fashion of the day because not only did it squeeze the, the abdomen into a very tiny thing with the very tidy, tight corsets. Um, you can imagine what happens to the organs inside of you with, with this very wasp-type waste. It bloomed way out and went clear onto the ground. And when it went onto the ground, then when you're on the street, you know, we don't have cars in those days. We have horses and you know what happens to streets when horses are trotting along there? You know, they're filthy streets. And the women's dresses would just sweep through all of this, this muck and grime and whatever else. Uh, the other thing that Ellen White had against it was the, the fact that uh, there, there would be these big bustles and big hoops. And so if you, if you would lift a hoop to step into a carriage or something, your whole leg would be exposed because everything would go right with the hoop. So Mrs. Stanton had, you know, a valid point about the, the fashions of the day. They were really, really not healthy. But Mrs. White used the health message as her basis to object to the fashion. That also modesty. But Mrs. Stanton's point in objecting to the fashions of the day was women's rights. Because a woman with all this, and her idea was that they were such ridiculous clothes, it hampered her, hampered, her, hampered her from being able to ascend up and do exactly what men do because they just couldn't physically do it. So she early realized that the ridiculous clothing of the day hampered women from accomplishing everything a man could do. So she wore bloomers. Um, you can see the, the bloomers were kind of interesting uh, with these kind of balloon pants under, which, uh, and then this other thing, and then another thing over. And the first day she stepped out with this kind of bloomer outfit the people were in shock. I mean, they threw, um, they threw things at her and whistled at her, and, and pretty soon she just gave up because she realized that if she persisted in wearing this bloomer thing, even though she believed in it, she would never get anywhere with anybody, and so she gave up the, the bloomers. But it was the first step in wearing similar clothing Those of you on this side, don't feel bad about moving over here because I know I'm kind of standing in your way, so I I don't mind if you get up and move over to the other side of the room. Now, uh, Stanton was way ahead of her time. Even though she was ahead of her times, all of her spiritualistic ideas have been embraced by modern feminism, and you see it coming in. And, And in many of the ideas of these days, feminism... The craft, as they call it, new age, it's all wrapped up together. Uh, The marriage was opened, easy divorce, and even lesbianism. Scripture was reinterpreted, God is renamed, and cross-dressing was more uh, accepted. First step, way back then. Now, I want to share a very colorful person with you by the name of Victoria C. Woodhull. She blended spiritualism with women's rights as well. Now, if you can see this little uh, cartoon here, this is actually from one of the uh, Harper's Weekly of 1872, and it says there in that very fine print, Get thee behind me, Mrs. Satan. I'd rather travel the hardest road of matrimony than follow in your footsteps. Okay, so we know something's going on there, but what what is it? Let's find out. So let's talk about Victoria Woodhull. Tenny C. Clayflin was her sister, and Victoria Woodhull were sisters. They came to the public notice as mediums. They were kind of had a gypsy upbringing and very poor upbringing, but they were both very gorgeous women and they did these these trances on people and would have full control over them. Both had visions and trances and could tell fortunes. They became the first women stockbrokers stock on Wall Street. And you say, huh, how did that happen? Out of poor people, how did they get way up there? Well, there was a man behind them and his name was Cornelius Vanderbilt. He was the uh, railroad tycoon of the day and he set them up on Wall Street and Amazingly, these women did very well on, on Wall Street and uh, were quite a sensation because nobody, no women ever would even consider being on Wall Street. But here, these two gorgeous women uh, were having an impact there. Now, interestingly, Victoria C. Woodhull was the first woman to run for President of the United States Under the guidance of Andrew Pearl, her personal spirit guide, he helped her to realize her potential and her calling. Hmm, interesting. He prophesied her realizing her potential rise to power, and she ended up running for president on a women's rights and spiritualistic platform in 1872. Did you know that there was a woman that ran for president in 1872? Well, the reason why you haven't heard about it is because she didn't get too far, but she did have a chance to even talk to the congressional um, the, the Congress. And because she got this far, the other women's rights movement women were just astounded. How could this Victoria Woodhull, here they had been working all these years and had put, in, put all these different uh, statements together, and this sensational Victoria Woodhull goes right in and is able to present to Congress. Now, other women's rights really didn't like her, but when she got all that attention, they sort of began to include her, and, and yeah. So notice the type one and type two. We have a spiritualist. Type 1, and then we find that the rising to power, ye shall be as gods, you can burst out, you can break that ceiling above you. Those are some of the terms we even hear today, aren't they? I want to discuss her views on morality. This was really the beginning of the sexual revolution, and she was, a, like I said, she was got a poor background. So you can kind of imagine uh, the profligacy that was there. Uh, this was a speech she gave. And she said, they, ha- they say, I have come to break up the family. I say amen to that with all my heart. And a perfected sexuality shall continuous life be found. Type two, type two type spiritualism. Such to me, my brothers and sisters, is the sublime mission of spiritualism to be outwrought through the sexual emancipation of woman and her return to self-ownership and to individualized existence. All right. What was the, the goal of spiritualism? To, put, uh, to sexually emancipate women and give her return to her own self. All right? Very interesting. Like I said at the beginning, Uriah Smith had some ideas about uh, Woodhull, and he did a big, long discussion on this. In the review of September 26, 1871, In an account of spiritualistic mediums of that day, Uriah Smith told how the career of Mrs. Woodhull was planned and executed thus far wholly by the spirits. Okay? And the people of those days, they were, she was not, I I would not say she was greatly loved and adored and accepted. She was way beyond the time of those people. But, Today, people look back at her. You you can go Google her. You'll see everything I've I've said. And I've been very tame about the things I've said because you'll be shocked at the kinds of things she said. Uh, Victoria never stopped believing that the spirits had brought her into the world to lead a social revolution. She said that from her birth and even before, she had been marked for this fate. In her life and views, she was more than a century before her time, claimed Gloria Steinem, one of today's leading feminists. She urges women to catch the, notice the word, spirit of the real Victoria Woodhull. Okay? Victoria Woodhull, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they were radical in their time, but they've really kind of almost gone mainstream now. Here, notice type two, spiritualism there. So, we say, these radical feminists, they were really far out. Um, How about the goals of feminism today? Are they still spiritualistic? Three things about the church that feminism wants to change. They want to change God. After all, how can women identify with a male God and a male Jesus? That's their view. The language must be made inclusive. They want to change Bible interpretation because clearly the Bible is against women, or so they say. Since the Bible is plain about the role of women, it must be interpreted through higher critical methodology. They want to change church organization Male pastors and elders must be replaced with equal number of women and all leadership levels. May I emphasize that? There there should be no distinctions between men and women. Anyone is okay doing anything in the church. And it's okay to marry anyone even across gender lines. So these are some of the radical... Uh, aspects of feminism today. Mary Daly, she's recently died. Um, She was a nun, uh, and she was very outspoken on God. Her famous thought is, if God is male, then male is God. And of course, she resisted that. The fatherhood of God is, in fact, a product of this domination of males spawned in the human imagination. What does that say about the word of God? Okay, It totally puts down what God says about himself in the Bible and gives a a really um, spiritualistic uh, idea. Now, this is an interesting picture here. This is Edwina Sandy's Christa. Mounted at the New York Cathedral of St. John Divine in 1984. Notice it's a crucifix here, and instead of Christ being on the crucifix, it is a woman, a naked woman. Um, And so women, the feminists of the day, they don't like Jesus, and so they'll call... Jesus Christa or Child of Sophia or Wisdom's Child and give all sorts of names to Jesus. Now, what about the transformation of language? This is a rather old news week, uh, February 13, 1989. But even then, way back in 1989, Notice what they said. Putting more women in the pulpit is no longer the prime goal of Christian feminists. Rather, their aim is a thorough and comprehensive transformation of the language, symbols and sacred texts of the Christian faith. Notice that transformation of the language, symbols and sacred texts. The issue is no longer equality, says Margaret McManus. The issue is transformation of our religious institutions. Okay? And this is why I often say that sometimes we as a church are barking up the wrong tree because ordination is hardly the issue. All right? Yes, we must stop ordination, But this is the real kind of agenda that is going on. A comprehensive transformation. We're talking about revolution here of the language, symbols, and sacred texts and of the religious institutions. Okay, so feminism in the Bible. We find out that Mrs. Stanton's views were actually tame. Um, The SDA way of interpreting scripture is that we compare scripture with scripture if some text is not clear and we don't understand it we take other parts from the new testament or the old testament and we bring all the text together to get a, a full picture of what the bible says about a certain topic We take the obvious meaning, not some contrived, manufactured cultural meaning using higher critical methodology. And like I said yesterday, the seventh day actually means the seventh day. No gold means no jewelry. Washing feet means washing feet, not washing hands, like some feminist uh, ceremonies have you do. Uh, Even though it may be a difficult lifestyle change we would believe God rewards us with obedience to the word of God. However, Mary Daly on the Bible says, biblical authors were merely men of their times who could never be free of the prejudice of their epochs. Therefore, women of the church have just as much right to direct current theology as Paul did in scripture, to act as prophets and guide the church in a new direction. So, Notice, she believes the Bible is biased. And what does Ellen White say? Is the Bible biased? In Councils on Education, page 63, Ellen White says, uh, in, in, let me first of all say first that always there's the, presuppo- the presupposition that biased men were not capable of writing that God, what God wanted to say to us. But Ellen White says, here only we find a history of our race unsullied by human prejudice or human pride. So we can see immediately that the Bible is not biased, that we can trust the Bible. We can have full confidence in exactly what God said. If God wanted to say something else, he could have inspired something else. And when we throw all these other um, radical ideas into it, people are confused, and the Bible is, becomes very confusing to people. Elizabeth Schussler-Fiorenza is another uh, current feminist theologian, um, and here's a quote from her. Feminists must employ a hermeneutics of suspicion. That is, they must systematically assume that the Bible's male authors and interpreters deliberately covered up the role of women in Christianity. Does that give you great confidence in the scriptures? Absolutely not. She goes on to say, Biblical texts cannot be authoritative for women until they are critically reinterpreted from women's experience of oppression. She Notice this, they cannot be authoritative. So they must be critically reinterpreted. All right, here we go on to, she goes on to say, women today not only rewrite biblical stories about women, but also reformulate patriarchal prayers and create feminist rituals celebrating our ancestors. We rediscover in story and poetry, in drama and liturgy, in song and dance, our biblical four sisters' sufferings and victories. I want to ask you, where do they get these rituals and prayers and stories and poetry and liturgy? They make them up, okay? It's pure fiction. But yet, this is what they, uh, the story and dances that they do are all made up based on what they' are guessing from a, a certain text. So they notice they rewrite biblical stories. She goes on to say, in every every new images and symbols, we seek to rename the God of the Bible and the significance of Jesus. We not only spin tales about the voyages of Prisca. Notice she, she uses spin tales, all right? So this tells you it's pure fiction. Spin tales about the voyages of Prisca, the missionary, or about Junia, the apostle, but also dance Sarah's circle and experience prophetic enthusiasm. We sing litanies of praise to our four sisters and pray laments of mourning for the lost stories of our foremothers. mothers. So I've just given you a sample of very radical women's feminists today. Um, and people will, will protest and say, well, that has nothing to do with our church, but I will show you some things that will make you maybe uh, rethink that. Ordination is just a step towards the equality that feminists are after. Women, as elders, ministers, must be allowed full equality in their minds. They want top rungs of leadership to be without regard to gender. They want to reinterpret plain scriptures to allow anything. Ordination is just the entry wedge that makes all this possible. So, how does, uh, let's talk about this culture reinterpreting the word. Feminism uses culture to change the meaning of literal words of scripture. The Bible may say this very plainly, but if you do enough research into the local um, culture, you'll find out that there was a goddess worship here, or you'll find out that um, maybe there were some false prophets, or that some other... Um, group had some impact and maybe at, during that time these people were affected by such and such a culture. It's all fictional. Okay, We don't know that. The only thing you and I have to go by is the plain word of God. Anything else that is spun around it, we don't know. We, it might be But it might not be. We have no idea. And to base our whole doctrine on something that might be is a very dangerous thing. The culture today inspires the hermeneutic. The whole Bible interpretation method is at risk. And some are determined to go ahead whether the churches agree or oppose. And it has split churches. But in this whole debate, we miss the whole point. We are all to be working for the Lord. It's the rebelliousness, the type two spiritualism, if you might say, that we will do it at any cost. Or some have gotten so hung up on ordination question that they get discouraged from doing anything. So they're their two extremes. The rebellion that, you know, we're just going to go ahead no matter what anybody says or whatever, if this is right, and we're just going to do it. Or the p- other people on the other hand say, oh, this whole thing, I just, I just hate it. I'm just not going to do anything about it. Some people even leave the church. Only one who has benefited from all of this controversy is the devil. All of us, men, women, and children can serve the Lord, and that's what my next lecture will be. But some may say, oh, these are radical feminists. But let me tell you, feminists evolve. People progress in their ideas. Conservative biblical feminism is no longer advanced by those who initiated it. Writers such as Scanzoni, Hardesty, Mullencott, those were the biblical feminists when I was going through seminary. They have now left evangelicalism to join liberal feminists and uh, are completely talking differently than they used to. In order to embrace both the Bible and feminism, they end up compromising what? Their ideas? Do they subject themselves to the word of God? No, they compromise the Bible. Yesterday I gave some... uh, Reference to the Alpha of Apostasy. Our only hope is a simple, childlike interpretation of the, of the Scriptures. If the Bible says it, we don't need culture, we don't need all these things. Yes, sometimes the culture, and we understand a little bit more of the background of the times, that gives us a little more understanding, and I'm not against that. But when we take culture and we use that to go against what is plainly said, that's where I have problems, okay? So our only hope is in a simple, childlike interpretation of scripture. Ellen White rebuked Kellogg for spiritualizing away the plain, simple, real word of God and called it the Alpha of Apostasy. The Omega much worse is still to come. I believe it must also include biblical interpretations since that's, that was what Kellogg got uh, mixed up on. I don't know exactly. There's one other... What time is is this session supposed to be over? Can somebody look at your little booklet? 10.20. 10.20, okay. Let's go through this quickly. There was one other aspect of feminism that uh, Woodhull and Stanton both talked about, and that was the morality issue and sexuality. So I want us to have a better look at what gender is all about. The reason God is interested in distinctions in role and dress, um, United Nations Agency in Charge of Research on Women has put out the idea that persons are not necessarily born with a specific gender. Gender develops culturally, socially, politically, or economically. So the goal is pansexuality acceptable everywhere. Male, female, homo- homosexual, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, omnisexual. We've gone a long way in the last few years towards this goal. And if you've been following it, it's shocking. Uh, in, from INSTRA, this is the uh, United Nations document. Gender is a concept that refers to a system of roles and relationships between women and men that are determined not by biology, but the social, political, and economic context. One's biological sex is a natural given. Gender is constructed. That's what gender is. So. Gender issues. By the way, this O'Leary gender agenda, if you want to know more about gender, you'll get a lot of insight by looking at that book. Young women openly enter into intimate relationships with both genders that are more than just experiments. They resist being described as straight or gay or even bisexual, which some things suggest promiscuity and one night stands. Instead, they use fluid words like omnisexual. The family, they want to redefine to mean two roommates, not man and woman. Now, this is coming more and more into our local culture. I've been shocked as I've gone out and associated with people. Uh, do you, very often, somebody will introduce, this is my partner. What does that mean? That's the new term instead of wife or husband this is my partner number one you don't know if they're married or not it can mean that both sexes partner is the equal term in, used in marriage now androgyny is a combination of masculine and feminine characteristics with no distinction and lesbian and homosexuality acceptance is the ultimate goal. Uh, we have pop culture with Michael Jackson, etc., which, where he would wear women's clothes, wear makeup, do his hair, you know, all these kinds of things. And more and more you see men wearing makeup, wearing jewelry, teasing their hair and making it beautiful, wearing long hair, all these types of things you see on the men's side. Now, for a women's side, you've been seeing that for a long time. God wants us to be really distinct. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. So Satan's idea is to blur all distinction. This is, We don't want uh, anything that clearly defines so dress has always expressed philosophy. We saw that Stanton and the Bloomer came out uh, expressing her desire for equality. But this was, none of this was really accepted until uh, World War II when trousers for women uh, were in vogue because women were running the factories. The men were all off at war. So women, uh, you don't want your dress getting caught in the machinery. It was a practical thing. But it kind of carried on after that. 1960s, the pantsuit came into uh, vogue and the hippies and the new age all came out. Uh, jeans has probably been the most um, the, the best blurring of all of this as, uh, as possible. Uh, way back when I was in school I went to visit a friend at one a large university mind you, I'm a, a sheltered missionary's kid, you know, I, I wasn't out there in the world, I didn't know what was going on. And I went to give Bible studies to this this woman at a university and she took me to her cafeteria. And I was shocked because all the women were wearing jeans and t-shirts and there really was no distinction. And this was way back, like I say, when I was in school. But now it's just everybody, you know, if you want to wear something that's That's accepted by both sides, and you wear jeans, a t-shirt, all all blurs the distinction God wants. Feminism today is into girl power. Victoria Woodhull used it. Her her sexuality to bring on the men, and women are now uh, encouraged to use it. My generation of liberationists, they said, no, don't use your sexuality. We're going to get there because we're so good. Don't use your sexual powers. Today's feminists, uh, called third wave, girls rule, boys drool. And they use their sexuality to get what they want. And that's third wave feminism using sexuality to get power. So you can remember that Stanton's great idea was that women be released from their home And Stanton's dream was that uh, child care would be good. In fact, Tennessee Claflin, Stanton's sister, dreamed of an organization where all children could be raised by the government. And that everybody would have equal opportunities in this wonderful uh, utopia of child care. Well, they've almost come to pass. Today, the beautiful role of mothering is disdained. Women's careers are all important. Some are willing to dispose of unborn children because they are inconvenient. And this is why abortion is a feminist issue, because it's a matter of choice. Okay, All part of this feminist agenda. Ellen White, on the other hand, in Second uh, Bible Commentary 1008, shows how mothering is one of the highest ministries. Would that every mother could realize how great are her duties and her responsibilities and how great will be the reward of faithfulness. The mother's daily influence upon her children is preparing them for everlasting life or eternal death. She exercises in her home a power more decisive than the minister in the desk or even the king upon his throne. Um, mothering is um, kind of looked down on. As I was a mother with two children growing up, people would say, um, so what do you do? And I would say, oh, I stay home with my kids. I'm a mother. And they would say, oh, that, that would be the end of the conversation. You know, <laughs> there's nothing else to discuss because mothers don't know anything. You know that. And so that would be the end. This is a chance for us to re-bring in the idea of being excellent mothers, cherishing these children that are going to bring up the the next church. This is our chance. It's more important than being a minister or being even president of the United States. Very important, Ellen White says. So what kind of lessons do we get from Great Controversy 557 of 558? It is true that spiritualism is now changing its form, unveiling some of its more objectionable features, and is assuming a Christian guise. While it formerly denounced Christ and the Bible, it now professes to accept both. You saw how the Christian feminists, they're Christian, sort of, but everything is changed. They're revamping everything. While it formally denounced Christ in the Bible, it now professes to accept both. But the Bible is interpreted in a manner that is pleasing to the unrenewed heart, while its solemn and vital truths are made of no effect. So, early writings 263 and 264. What about type 2 spiritualism? He who is the father of lies, Satan himself blinds and deceives the world by sending forth his angels to speak for the apostles and to make it appear that they contradict what they wrote by the dictation of the Holy Ghost when on earth. That's a very strong statement, by the way. Are you noticing that? Satan delights to throw professed Christians and all the world into uncertainty about the word of God. That is his goal. That holy book cuts directly across his track and thwarts his plans. Therefore, he leads men to doubt the divine origin of the Bible. Type 2 spiritualism. So we must become sensitive to the inroads of spiritualism through culture all around us. This is an important lesson for Seventh-day Adventists to learn. We cannot stay naive on these things. We must understand where all of this is coming from. Spiritualism does not always assume medium rapping guys. Watch out for philosophical spiritualism embodied in feminism and its effects on culture. God help us all not to fall for the culture around us. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio,